0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Zebulon Davenport, the Vice President for Student Affairs at Westchester University, about his experiences as a VPSA during the pandemic. Zeb, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Dana. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Absolutely thanks for inviting me to take part in your podcast. I'm excited.
1: <laughs> I'm excited as well. Um, Zeb, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I'll just provide you a little bit of background on who I am. i um, I've been married to my my wife since 1997. <laughs> we have uh, when you're talking about the pandemic, you know we've got two teenagers. I have a twelfth grader and a tenth grader who, we are also navigating the COVID situation and their schooling. Um, personally, I'm an avid exerciser, um, and I have a couple of pastimes or hobbies. So one of them is writing. Uh, I have co-authored or co-edited three books. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into the names of them, but but they are around first-generation college students, student assessment, and uh, leadership skills and abilities for student affairs administrators. Um, also, have had the opportunity and been fortunate to co-author or author many chapters in other publications. Um, so, a couple of other my uh, other pastimes for me. Uh, I enjoy coaching and, more importantly, watching my daughter play softball. Uh, I love music; jazz is my my. Uh, my uh, genre of choice, I play the drums and trombone. And my favorite pastime, my favorite pastime, as of late, um, I was given a smoker for Father's Day. And I love smoking. <laughs> I spend the weekend smoking meat. Even though I had lived with a, a vegetarian and a plant-based <laughs> eater, <laughs> I smoke meat and bring it to my colleagues because uh, it's just something I enjoy doing.
1: Well thank you thank you for sharing that um and i i Um, I didn't mention to you this uh, off-air, Zeb, but I I do usually like to mention to my listeners, to the listeners, um, when I have someone on that I know personally. Um, And so Zeb and I um, know each other. We've known each other for several years now. We're both based in um, the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania. And so um, both of us being higher ed folks, um, our paths have crossed. And um, it's been just um, a joy um, getting to know Zeb. We've gotten to work together some so I wish I lived a little bit closer because I would totally take some of that smoked meat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did not know that you played the drums. Um, my yeah. husband is also a drummer. So, oh really? Yes, yes. He hasn't played as much as of late, but um, he is a drummer and jam. He's he a jam band guy. Mm. That's what that was his. <laughs> is think of choice, especially in college.
0: Nice.
1: But um, so, yeah, so I always like to provide a little bit of context up front for listeners um, so, so they know, like, when I'm having a conversation, if I reference something that, yes, we do we do um, know each other and we work together and we are just, just friends in the field.
0: That's exactly right.
1: Um, so, Zeb, um, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what drew you to higher ed and um, college administration and specifically student affairs.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's it's... Most people who get into this profession called student affairs don't usually as a kid or, or a young person say, when I grow up, I want to be a student affairs professional. <laughs> it is usually always something that happens while they're in college. Maybe they have had a an advisor or they were in a club or an organization or somebody impacted their lives in a meaningful way outside of the classroom that really draws them to the field or You know, maybe it is um, um, a mentor who pushes them or or encourages them to think about higher education, uh, particularly student affairs. And so that was the case for me. Um, I graduated with my master's, my bachelor's, I'm sorry, from James Madison University. And uh, quite frankly, I graduated, went home and I was working for a finance company. And I sat in my chair one day, Dana, and just looked around at the people and looked at the work. And I decided that this work did not speak to me. Mm -hmm. So I called uh, the director of the Multicultural Center at James Madison University. And I said, listen, I said, I'm here. I've graduated. I want to come back to school. I said, there are things that I'm passionate about, but what I'm doing right now, I have no passion for it. And he says to me, and I do believe that there are no things, nothing uh, that is coincidence. I believe it is all divine design. And in that conversation, I will never forget, it was a Wednesday afternoon. And he said to me, it's interesting that you called me today because we just started class on Monday. And my GA decided that he didn't want to work here anymore. In fact, he's going to go to school somewhere else. So I have an opening for a graduate assistantship. And the field of higher education and student affairs is something that I believe would fit your passion. And literally, I resigned the next day. I drove down on the Friday with my clothes in my car, found an apartment and started class the next day. Now, I will say this to you. um, When you identify and find your passion and you throw everything you have into that, no matter what it is, success, happiness, satisfaction, and even monetary gain will follow. But the most beautiful thing about working or finding your passion is this. If you are passionate about what you do, you don't have to feel like you have to work For the rest of your life, you get to get paid for what you enjoy doing. So I ended up getting my master's from James Madison University, um, then went on uh, to work in the field for five years, as worked as a financial aid director, went back to JMU as a director for the Multicultural Center, nonetheless, uh, worked at JMU for 10 years. And while I was there, I received my doctorate. And then from there, there, the rest is history. And I don't know if you want me to go down through the rest of that, but I can tell you a little bit more about my path to where I am right now, or we can wait until later on. It's up to you. You're the boss.
1: Well, it's it's um, you know, it's it's we could go either way. Um, I don't know if that's something maybe you want to, you know, what I think I think we have some questions that may get to that. So maybe okay. we'll, we'll, and if there's pieces you want to weave in, um, sure, but sure. thank you for sharing that story. That's um that's amazing. That's am- like, like to think that in one day, in one conversation, <laughs> you, you, you know, had a program and an assistantship. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty phenomenal.
0: Um, well, and the interesting thing about it was this, um, what I, I, you know, there's sometimes when you don't know certain things, it's, there's a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 actually the program had started, I was a week late um, and I, I entered as a special student, a non-degree-seeking student, with the caveat of you can come, you can work here part-time, you take the classes, and if you do well and apply, you get into the program, then you can continue on. And it worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest is history. And that's why when I say um, I believe in divine design, some things are just meant to be. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I've been in this field professionally since 1992, and I have not regretted one day of being a higher ed professional. Not one day. There are some days that I feel like this work is challenging and oh, speaking of the pandemic, right? But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I've never regretted my career choice. So I feel fortunate, blessed, and thankful that this has worked the way it has for me.
1: Um, I'll say this one thing in in response before we move on to other questions, but um, your story just reminds me of – so Christina, my co-producer and co-host, and I were working on some um, articles um, around the podcast, and uh, she has a line in one of the articles that we just submitted this week, and it's about the podcast and how it came to be, and she said something to the effect of the idea of like, you know, sometimes it's a life path you just – you don't plan for, but you know, you got to take kind of yeah. thing. Like it's just yeah. one of those things that just the, the door opens and you walk through it and you may yeah. not know exactly what you're getting into or what it's going to look like, but you know, you got to go. So, um, that's, 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 a, a great, a great story. And, um, and, and wow, it just seems like just, it does just seems like it was a, a, a door that really opened a, a perfect door that opened and, mm-hmm. and having, um, I I do. And I said this too. I think um, I recorded with um, Alex, who is a Westchester grad, last week. And we talked about you know, the same idea that most people don't grow up thinking, I want to be a student. Aff-. I mean, unless their parents are in student affairs, right, and I know some right. of those folks, both parents were in student affairs. So their kids very much grew, grew up knowing about the field. But most of us who, if we didn't have that experience, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we weren't introduced to the field until way later. Yeah. And, um, and there's usually some story about an impact that someone has had on their lives in a significant way through college, throughout yeah. college. And, and, and that's kind of the beginning, right? The beginning of that tale. And I, I always love to hear those stories. So thank That's you for sharing You're welcome. Thank you. Um, so if you're willing, I, I'd like to kind of go back to last March. Um, and just for context, um, listeners know we're pretty much, we're the first week of March, 2021. Right now is when we're recording. So it's exactly a year ago at the moment of the shutdown. Uh, what was that time like for you in your campus?
0: Wow. <laughs> I often describe it um, to people like this. Imagine that you've prepared um, all of your adult life for a particular job or an athletic event. Oftentimes when I speak to athletes or coaches, I say you've prepared for a game. I don't care if it's basketball, football, rugby, soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, tennis, golf. The bottom line is you've prepared yourself. You've prepared your team for this big event and you know it and you know the playbook like the back of your hand. Everybody's prepared. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And when you get to the venue, they say, oh, by the way, we didn't tell you, but we're changing the rules of the game. And you go, great. And then they say, and there are no rules because we're making them up as we go along. And you go, really? Well, how do you win? We don't know. Well, how do you navigate? We don't know. Well, how do you determine who's up and who's down? We don't know. So what do we do? Well, you know what? In real time, you have to begin to make decisions with the information that you have at that moment and you make the best decision based on what you have at that given time. But here's the caveat, Dana. One of my colleagues described COVID at that time, and even now, as a Ferrari, and we're driving in a Volkswagen Jetta. (laughs) You get in, you start the car up, and COVID is down the road. And so what you know about COVID at this point in time, it will be different because when you get there, the thing has changed. And so literally, that's what we were doing. You know, what is best for our students? What is best for our constituents? What is best for the university with the information that we have? And I will be honest with you when Westchester University made the decision to not bring students back and go with an alternative mode of education and go remote, we were one of the first universities in this entire region to do it. And it drew so many criticisms, but as time went on, we realized that we made the best decision. Uh, Didn't mean that we had it all figured out. We just knew that we had to make decisions in real time. And thankfully, I worked with a group of very intelligent, very bright colleagues, and we all spent time trying to learn as much as we could about the situation and the impact it would have on our particular areas so our areas of expertise our knowledge our ability to do research was what allowed us to navigate the space even even now even now
1: hmm. thank you so that yeah let's let's kind of coming back to the present time, there are a number of ways campuses are operating at this point from fully virtual to, you know, variations of hybrid. Um, What about your campus? What does life look like now at Westchester and how are you managing the ever-changing climate of the pandemic um, on your campus and in your role?
0: So currently we are, um, we're probably about 90, 95% virtual. We have a few in-person classes, very few um, we have our total population at this institution is around 17,500 students uh, with a on-campus population of about 5,100 students we currently have about 600 students on campus uh, and probably about 1,000 to stu- 1,500 students who take some classes in some type of in person format, one way or the other. And we also, now just recently, last month, have invited uh, athletes back to campus to um, participate in their particular sports using uh, COVID requirements that have been instilled by the NC2A and even some of our campus um, protocols. So we are still virtually uh, or highly virtual with some in-person classes and a very small portion of our students in the residence halls.
1: Okay. What, what have been um, some of the biggest challenges for you as an administrator who's tasked with leading a team who is mostly student facing and, and how have you faced those challenges?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting. Um, There's, there's, when you talk about change and ambiguity, it is extremely important that one realizes that you lead through change and you lead through ambiguity and you manage problems and issues, all right? And the biggest thing that a leader can do is to always remember to describe reality as it exists, but also you have to manage the message. So the biggest challenge is having a group of people who are looking to you for leadership and being able to lead through that change or that ambiguity and make sure that folks are coming along and understanding that there's some things and that we don't know and there's some answers that we don't have, but having the confidence and the grace of the folks with whom you lead, it's important to be able to to um keep that confidence, and also have the grace of the folks with whom you work so that they understand that we might not get it right, but we're doing the best we can, uh, and, and hope that folks will give you the benefit of the doubt when things don't happen the way you would plan them to happen. Now, you said the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is not having answers to a question and not being able to predict what will happen uh, in the future and so um, but it tests your leadership acumen to be able to stay steady and the biggest lesson I've learned is you just because you start something you don't in these type situations you, you start something you don't have to feel like oh I've got to see this through to the end because if the circumstance changes you should be able to pivot navigate redirect and offer a different alternative or hear solutions or suggestions so that you can try other modes of, of operation. The big thing is when you don't know and you're leading, you have to feel uh, there's a space of being vulnerable mm. and you have to feel comfortable with not having the answers or, or not knowing or or, or, or or being able to change and pivot and being nimble. Those are the kinds of things that that I've learned through this pandemic is that you don't have to have all of the answers. You just have to be willing to try what you believe is the best thing with the information that you have at that given point. Hmm.
1: Well, and it sounds like too, you know, it's, it's, um, it challenges relationships too, and it and it really I think reveals uh, relationships like the the quality and the strength of relationships. Because what you're talking about of giving grace and giving the benefit of the doubt. And um, I was just reading an article on um, in the Chronicle that just came out in the last day or so about you know leading leading and managing change um, with your employees and the idea of you know if someone is in a meeting and they are having a rough time, you know. Step back and take a look at the whole. You know, is this right. who they are all the time, or is this just they've had a few bad meetings, right? And they've just been in a bad space because because everybody's mental health is really challenged right now.
0: That's right. And
1: so, you know, I say that it, challenge, it challenges relationships because you you know when you know somebody and you really know somebody at the core. You know, you know how they characteristically are and, and kinds of decisions they would make or what their intentions are, what their heart is, um, you know, those yeah. kinds of things. And sometimes, you know, they may miss the mark, but you, again, extend that grace and know that that, you know, just It's, it's, some of it is just the times we're, you know, experiencing, like you said, it's so unknown and it changes from day to day and there is no way to really know. And there's no model to really (laughs) look at, to say, this is how it's worked before. And so it really, you know, I, that's how I see it too, is, you know, are people giving grace and, and are they seeing you for, you know, who you are and, and, and that you are doing the best that you can and, and that sort of thing, or, you know, are they going to be the first ones to criticize and, and, you know, throw you overboard kind of thing. <laughs> um, uh,
0: you know, I'm, I tell you, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a really interesting point that you bring about. And here's what I often say to folks. A lot of times people are leaders. I should say people or leaders, um, Um, Only go to individuals when times are difficult, you know, or you go with bad news or or what have you. But I am a firm believer that relationships, the foundation of any relationship is built on trust and respect. And if you have that foundation of trust and respect, um, uh, I put it this way, you can trust somebody. But if you don't respect them, then it's going to be a rocky relationship. You can respect somebody, but if you don't trust them, then it's going to be a rocky relationship. Mm -hmm. Whether it's work, personal, doesn't matter. But if you have mutual trust and respect for an individual, then that's the foundation. Then you sprinkle that, Dana, with depositing, as I think it was... uh, I think it was Cubby that said this. I, I, I don't want to quote who I, I quoted Cubby, but it may not be him, but making deposit deposits in an individual's emotional bank account. And so the thing is, is that if you have the foundation of trust and respect and you've made significant deposits, not when the times are difficult, but when the times are good, that you are connecting with people and they see you as genuine and authentic and real, and when you get in tough times, then that's when folks will give you the benefit of the doubt. Because they understand and know, you know what? This person isn't out to get me. They're not being inauthentic. They're not they, and when, when that's there, that's when, when you lead through change or lead through chaos, is when it goes the smoothest because people give you that benefit of the doubt. But it starts with the relationship. And it starts with the foundation of trust, and in my opinion, trust and respect.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree. I would I would very much agree. Um, so so you are a seasoned administrator at this point in your career. Um, what, if anything, um, has prepared, has helped to prepare you for leading through this pandemic?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I, so this is a perfect time to kind of give the listeners a little bit of my my background. So, uh, as I mentioned before, I was a director of financial aid at a community college, and in those cases, I dealt with adversity and I dealt with you know difficult moments for people in their lives financially. And then I moved to James Madison and became the director of the Center for Multicultural Student Services, um, and um, I was there in that role for a few years and became an associate vice president for student affairs. At JMU, I was there for 10 years. And then my next job was at Northern Kentucky University. Uh, And I went there as an assistant vice president. And I was there for five months. And the president asked me if I would be willing to serve as the interim vice president because there was a shift and the current vice president. And I said to him, Well, oh, I, I came to be an assistant VP, not a vice president. He said, Well, here's where we are. <laughs> Things have changed. And uh, and we'd like you to serve in this role. You've 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 proven yourself even in the five months that you've been here, and we'd like you to serve as the assistant vice pres or the interim vice president for student affairs. And I'll never forget it because I, I said to him, Well, you know, I really would like to talk this over with my wife and get back with you, my, my partner, my, my spouse, and he comes back and says, that's fine, um, but I need to hear from you tomorrow. And um, we're planning to make a switch in a month, which told me, well, well, you can talk about it, but but we're gonna be moving in a certain direction. But you said to me, what has prepared me? Well, when I got in that seat, and then I'll shorten this and get to, get to the point, I was in that role for two weeks, and he delivered to me a a memo and asked me to do a division-wide self-study with recommendations on how we can approve the division. And oh, by the way, we just found out from the state that we have um, a 3% budget cut. So I'll need your budget plan to reduce your budget by 3%. And I need that by August the 31st, all right? So I had from July the 1st to August the 31st to do that plan. And what I didn't realize, Dana, was that was preparing me to lead through adversity. Um, I went to Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, I was there for five years and had to lead through some adversity. Came here to Westchester University. I've been here since um, 2016. We've had to lead through adversity, and here we are right now in the midst of a pandemic. So I believe that all through my career, I've had to deal with situations, have had to manage um, um, challenges or problems or solve problems. And I often tell people that our worth is not in owning a problem. But our worth is in how we resolve an issue or a problem. So I feel like I've been preparing for this all of my career at different points and places. Um, and even feeling like in the midst of a pandemic without information, how do you prepare? I think over the course, I've been a vice president since 20, um, 2007. So, you know, this has been what I've done for almost the bulk of my career in higher education at the highest level in terms of an executive level leadership on a college campus. So it's been, I've been preparing for this for the, since 2000, 2007 at this level.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so based on your experiences with students on your campus now at Westchester, um, what would you say are the biggest impacts and challenges facing students right now?
0: Wow, that's a great question. Um, I will tell you that I hear from students that being disconnected is one of the biggest challenges they face. Mm-hmm. You know, as human beings, um, by nature, we are generally social beings. And for many students, being disconnected has been a huge challenge. Now, you also have the issue Uh, And we cannot forget this. Uh, We have issues of access, affordability, technology, distance learning, Uh, and there are some students who have different um, disabilities that impact their life in a Zoom or virtual environment that we cannot forget. So all of these things um, are things that I hear from students and not to mention, and not the least of these is what's happening in our society with regards to race relations and um, politics. And what I see as a division in our country like I have never seen before, all of these things are things that our students are having to deal with. And for at least half of the population on a college campus, they've not been on campus um, in a real live situation because the pandemic started, if you remember, in the spring when we evacuated our campuses. And so it's already a year. And by the time these students come back in August, we will almost have two classes or two and a half classes with very little on-campus experience. And that's not just this campus, that's most of the campuses around the country. Yes.
1: Yeah, and it's, so, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's um, the idea of, you know, the social unrest that we're experiencing in the division and the just so much um, in our country. Um, in addition to this pandemic, and then having to deal with that and experience that in a in a in a distanced way, in a um, you know, is is challenging. Having some of these these really hard conversations that are hard, you know, even if we weren't in the middle of a <laughs> pandemic, and having these conversations face to face, these are really hard. You're tough, and um and so being able to you know process that and think through that and experience that, you know, in you know, when you're, when you are feeling quite isolated and, and, um, and there's so many of those, like you said, those connectivity, um, challenges. And I know like, even in some of the work, the volunteer work that I do, um, you know, there's been some folks who have just dropped off because, you know, they, you know, if, if it's people who are not used to like, like work. So like my husband works from home, my partner, um, he works from home and, and did before the pandemic. That's just the nature of what he what he does. So he was used to being on a computer all day and or being on Zoom calls. Zoom is a part of our life long before the pandemic. And, you know, but for some people, this is very new. And so they've, you know, they realize like, um, I can't do this for hours and hours on end, and they've just like removed themselves from situations because they just, you know, they've. It's like new capacities, like you know, this thing I didn't know was an issue for me is now an issue because I never had to, you know, had to deal with this before. And so, right. you know, new things. It's it's not even things that we know, but it's like new issues coming up yeah. for folks that they may not have even known for themselves. You know, That's students right. especially, because it's like, wow, I I could sit and do homework on my own for X amount of time, but when I'm sitting through you know, uh, Christina, just uh, my co-host, uh, one of her episodes just posted this week. And she was talking to um, a high school student, a high school senior, and and this idea that, you know, she was saying she's in school four hours a day in classes, but the amount of time she's having to spend on her computer learning the material on her own is so much, you know, she's spending 10, 11 hours a day, you know, with schoolwork yeah. on the computer. And so, um, also, numbers are deceiving. You know, she said people will be like, well, what are you doing? You're only in school for four hours." Well, she's only in class for four hours, <laughs> That's and right. you know she's on the computer doing. And so, you know, there's also this this issue of. Um, and I teach in an online program, and so and I've done work um, ac- with you actually on about online yes. you know, research on online learners and. You know, online learning requires such a a level of self-regulation and self-discipline, and you know, there's there's rubrics and protocols and all these measures that we take to help students understand if they if that's a good fit for them, right, to be an online learner. And um, you know, we did this work before the pandemic, and and I've that's thought right. about that a lot. And and now everyone's just forced into that situation, whether or not it's a good fit for you, whether or not it's a good match. Um, and it has a lot of challenges, and so I'm and sure it is bringing
0: up yeah it's interesting because like you said uh what was really interesting for me is four years ago i said folks we need to start looking at how to create environments for students who are taking classes online and it was such a foreign concept (laughs) right and you know we we worked together you did some research and we, we were able to look at some, some types of support and things of that nature. But even then, which was only almost two years ago, yeah. it seemed like a foreign concept. And all of a sudden, here we are thrust in the mm-hmm. middle of trying to figure out how to support students, provide certain learning opportunities for them in a virtual environment. And all of a sudden, it became real. Yeah. yeah. It became real.
1: So, so, yes, um, all those things, I feel like we're just so well versed in, in in talking about, but not necessarily. No one has, you know has um, you know, mastered this at this point. We're all still you know, grappling with how to do it. That's, that's what, you know, all of the resources that I get on a regular basis where there's people still offering all kinds of trainings and teaching and how do we do this better? And, and so, you know, a, and, and because who thought, who thought a year in we would still be, still be here and, and, and looking to the next year. But um, so speaking of looking to the future, um, looking to the future of higher ed, what do you see? What lasting impacts do you foresee as a result of the pandemic?
0: Well, I can tell you this much, if people go back to doing things and operating the way they did pre-COVID, once we get beyond this thing, they will have missed a major opportunity to learn, change, and grow. Frankly, one of the things that I see is, you know, uh, we used to be handcuffed by the only way we can do business is in person. And what we've learned over the last year is there are multiple ways to deliver programs, services, and um, educational opportunities for students. Uh, uh, you know, we, we no longer have to say, well, if you can't make it at this time, then you miss it because we can, we can put it on YouTube, we can uh, live stream it, we can Um, um, Zoom the meeting. If somebody can't make it, we can Zoom them in. So there's so many things that um, we should take away from this experience. And not only that, this provides us with opportunities to show have flexibility around folks who may have difficult situations where they can't come to a certain, you know, it's interesting, Dana, in higher education, we always lag behind by years. And you just mentioned your husband, he's been working, you know, remotely or from home for most of his career, right? Well, we should be taking a, here's the big thing, we should start taking lessons from the industry who are doing things different and not be so stagnant as an institution. And I'm not talking about a single institution. I'm talking about the institution of higher education mm-hmm. to be able to become more adaptable and nimble in how we go about doing our business on a daily basis.
1: Mm. Yes. And, and this is that, so just to clarify, um, uh, my, my Casey is uh, my, is my partner, my husband, um, he actually, I'd say about five years he's been doing remote work cause he went into software. Um, but he was a higher ed, you know, he was a, at the director level for um, admissions. He does admissions and enrollment in higher ed. Um, that's what, but now he works on, for, yeah, okay. he does software consulting for university. So his clients are universities and colleges around the country. And so, um, so he, we've done a lot of on-campus between the two of us. Um, we've lived on campus and and all that and lived in and the whole thing. Um, but yes, I would say that there is, um, this is a conversation I've had with some colleagues I've presented on this as well. This idea of, you know, time and seat models of education and work are, you know, we, these are some things we were talking about, um, you know, 10 years ago with some of my colleagues and I, this, this, they're antiquated, right? It's a very antiquated idea. Um, and, one of the things that I've been, I've been fortunate to work with people and have supervisors who understood that. And, and really the idea that, you know, you have work to do and how and where you do that work, you know, obviously if you're a student facing, you know, you need to be in the office to do meetings and things like that. But other than that, you know, it's kind of you, you're capable, right? You have a PhD or, you know, you have a master's degree, like, you know, what needs to get done. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be sitting in this desk in this office, nine hours a day to do it. Um, And I think, you know, yes, I'm, I'm, and there's that we need to be, we need to be thinking about how that, you know, is going to change, um, going forward. And I, and I'm sure many people are, and there's, there's a lot of positive, you know, to that just environmentally, right. Like, um, commuting and, and all of those different pieces of, of, um, there are benefits to it as well. And then the flexibility we can afford folks, um, at different times in their lives when there are different demands, um, on their time and, um, So yes, I think um, I agree with you. I'd like, I'm, I'm interested to see how, how, how we adapt because um, we need to, and um, typically higher ed isn't always the fastest (laughs) one to adapt. Um, And I've heard other, other colleagues in the field say this, you know, and I've read this as well. It's like, you know, well, we learned that we can, we can, if we absolutely have to, Um, the field has pivoted um, and people have figured that out. But I, um, you know, along those same lines though, I do know that you know, it's, it's taxing. Um, It's taxing on, on faculty. I'm watching even teachers, you know, in my son's, you know, elementary school, Um, you know, offering, doing the live in person alongside a virtual is, is, Mm -hmm. it's like twice the work. It's, it's a lot Um, of planning. It takes a lot of resources as well.
0: That's that's the big uh, misnomer that Zoom is easier.
1: Yeah, no. It's actually
0: (laughs) a lot more stressful, right?
1: Yes. Um, but, and, it, and it takes yeah. a different level of planning.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And so I think, you know, that's something to think about as we are, you know, and it's hard because budgets are already, um, you know, I don't know that higher ed's ever really recovered after 2008 and, um, and budgets and, and asking people to do more with less. Um, and then this, you know, real, you know, after this post pandemic world, what if we ever get there, what, you know, is going to look differently and, Um, But the resources are going to have to be different as well if we're going to, you know, if we're not going to burn everybody out, if they're not going to already be burned
0: out um, as a result of this. Here's what's interesting. You know, you know, we talk about getting to a post pandemic. Um, We haven't even figured out what the new normal is going to be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we're still trying to get through the, you know, some folks might think it's the end of it. But this might be the end of one chapter, but there are going to be other chapters that come along that it's going to it's going to cause us to have to do business differently. And and you know, finances are a big part of that. Yes. A big part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you made the point of higher ed really not recovering from the two thousand eight um, and I and I will tell you it was literally starting 2007, all the way almost till 2011, um, before you started seeing some relief. And we still haven't gotten back to where we were before that time. Mm
1: -hmm. So, yeah. So we've, we've got, we've got a lot and, and, and here we are now. And so there's a lot of, I just think that's an important piece to, to mention, you know, you got to, if you're going to talk about how we're going to change and what we're going to take with us, then, you know, we've got to acknowledge the resources as well and, and resources broadly. I mean, not just the finances, but the people, the people and, and what we're doing with, um, you know, with the people as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So when this pandemic, if we can, if we can go to this place, when this pandemic is completely behind us and you're looking back on this period, if you can imagine that, um, what do you hope to be able to say?
0: Um, We made it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we made it. Um, I will tell you this. uh, Everything and anything in life is relative. Um, Dana, in my career, as a vice president for student affairs specifically, one of the worst parts of my job is whenever we have a student death. Mm -hmm. Because typically I'm the person that has to work with or talk to or do some type of navigation with a family or a loved one who sent their student away to get an education and that student won't ever return. I say that to say this, for me, for me, no matter how difficult this situation is, I always say it's not worse than having to make a phone call to a person and say, your student is not coming home. So when I look back at this situation after we get through it, I will still say no matter what we went through, it's not as bad as having to deliver that sad news. I will also say that we found ways to solve problems in the midst of the situation where we saw no potential resolution. And so the piece that I walk away with is anything, anything is possible as long as you are standing on your two feet and still able to breathe and communicate, we can work through anything. The only absolute is death, and that's done. But anything beyond that, we should be able to figure it out.
1: Hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's um, that's definitely a perspective taker right there. Um, perspective giver, I guess I should say that. That. So, what advice? if any, do you have for other student affairs administrators who are working through these similar challenges across the country and, and really across the world at this point?
0: Yeah. Um, and, I, and I would give it to anybody, whether they're in student affairs or academic affairs or wherever you are, um, one of the best pieces of advice um, that I was given was from my first president, Dr. James Votruba. And he said to me, and I said it earlier, Zeb, once you find your passion, unpack your bags, take root, and throw everything you have after your passion, and the rewards will follow. I say to folks oftentimes, Dana, That success, and these are not my words, success is a journey and not a destination. So as you as you hit milestones, take a moment to reflect and celebrate and keep moving forward. Because as my grandfather would say and did say, it's one thing to be content and satisfied. And when you're both content and satisfied you're no longer learning or growing but the art of the peace of mind and prosperity is to be content with what you have or what you've been giving but not satisfied with where you are because every step you take if you're content with what you have but you're not satisfied with where you are, you will continue to learn and grow. And you won't feel like, well, this person has this and they have that and they have more than me and why don't I have, but I'm content with what I have, but not satisfied with where I am. And then finally, I uh, I know we're getting ready to come to a close, but you mentioned something about life path earlier. Your co-host had mentioned life path. And I would leave for your listeners these words. There's a difference between work and your job. And for me, your vocation, your vocation or your work is your calling. Once you have found your vocation, you can begin to do your work. Your job is where you do your work. So if you're square on what your calling is and your vocation is and what your work is, what you've been called to do, then you can do your work in many different places, which is your job. It's great if your job and your work are uh, in congruence because it allows you to have a a peace of mind when you come to the place where you've been called to do what you felt your vocation is. But make sure you understand what your vocation is, so that when you go to do your work on your job, you're clear. Because when you deal with the nuances that exist on a job, when you're clear about your work, you can separate all the things that will distract you from your calling. Hmm.
1: Wow. Well, the (laughs) I just want to, and I just want to. That's fabulous. Your, the distinction in all of that, um, the distinction in your grandfather's words between contentment and satisfaction, being content versus satisfied, I think that's a really important um, and very valuable distinction. And then the distinction you made as well between, you know, your work um, or your job and your calling and and knowing that your your work and the calling that you have um and, and how that hopefully that matches up with the job that you actually, you know, are in and get paid to do, because that's when you you don't really work. Right. You just uh, enjoy true. doing what um, you like to do. If so get
0: paid to do it. <laughs> to do
1: it. I know that's the dream. Um, Casey it, and I have to say we're living the dream. <laughs> that's living the dream. Yeah. Um, So, um, we are getting close to time, but, um, and it's been great talking with you, but before we wrap up, um, can you share with us or tell us something that you are working on now?
0: Well, I'm going to share this with you. In fact, this might be something I've got a team of folks that I'm working with now on this, but this might be something that you and I should talk about. Um, and, um, it is probably for me, it's the next big horizon, Um, You know, in an environment where people are talking about a return on investment, a return on investment, the ROI, there's this notion in the digital field called called the ROX, the return on experience. Mm. And for higher education, particularly those folks who work in student affairs and student life, we have to begin to focus and articulate what the return on the experience is and how valuable that is to the students' experience, their life, their learning, their ability to give back to an institution. That, theNA is the next big horizon. What is the ROX and how do we translate that in a higher education setting when folks are looking for A return on the investment, meaning I've paid you this. Mm -hmm. What am I getting for it from a dollar to dollar perspective? So that's Mm -hmm. what I'm working on, and and uh, I feel like that's the next big big thing. Uh, We'll see where it takes us.
1: Mm. Thank you, thank you. Yeah i um, I had another friend and colleague on doing a pandemic perspective, um, Doctor. Jim Breslin. I think you might know him. Yes. From, uh, some organizations. And, um, we, we talked along similar lines of this, you know, a business model of education versus, you know, this is humans we're dealing with. And, um, I think, you know, um, it's, it's it's similar sentiments um, that I'm hearing which is why I think you're both kindred kindred spirit friends and and colleagues uh, in the field yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a great um, I would love to hear more about that um, and as you develop that more maybe we could come back on and 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 explore that I think that would be a whole episode yeah um, of a conversation, the return on experience um, and thinking about education, putting the, I feel like putting the humanity back in education instead of, you know, the business model of, of an investment or a product that, you know, students are not products entirely that we produce through their four years, but they are, um, you know, humans and, and transformational um, experiences and then transformational education um, instead of transactional.
0: That's right.
1: Um, So thank you so much. Um, It's, I knew it would be wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing um, your experiences as a VPSA during the pandemic and then just generally um, uh, your experiences that you've you've had over the course of your career. Um, So thank you, Zeb, for being with us today on the channel.
0: Dana, I I appreciate the invitation. And for all of you who are listening to this, when you get to know Dr. Dana Malone, (laughs) if she calls you... And when she calls you and says, hey, I need, the answer is always yes. So thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It's been great catching up with you and talking with you. And I just hope and pray that somebody somewhere will take something away from this conversation that will help them to be better on tomorrow.
1: Yes, I'm sure they will. Thank you. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.